All right, hello. Um, welcome to Everyday Anarchism. The moment I started talking, Anthony, the cicadas just went in this in this arc. So uh, my guest today is Professor Anthony Caldellas, who's a professor at University of Chicago. Is that right, right. now? And you were at Ohio State University, but now you're yeah. at, at UCHI. And the reason why I mentioned the cicadas, dear listeners, is because uh, Professor Caldellas and I are both in a highly cicadan locations so if you don't like the sound of buzzing cicadas first of all don't don't live in north carolina or i guess on the corinthian peninsula of greece and secondly don't listen to this podcast sorry sorry about that if you're really a cicada hater we can't control the cicadas <laughs> at least it would be it would be human folly to try i believe and it's too hot to close the windows sorry <laughs> yeah i understand okay so um You've you've written a number of books on a wide range of subjects related to the the Byzantine Empire, um, which which I understand that even that is. Uh, so let me let me take a step back then. Um, I said we were going to start with your book, The Byzantine Republic. Let's start instead with the Byzantine Empire, which uh, is not well. I feel like well studied or understood. Um, at least in in my experience in academia in the United States, not covered and taught in the same way that something like uh, ancient Greece, especially Athens, is taught or the Roman Empire. And in fact, one place that your book starts is the problem of naming this thing and and understanding it, because one way to understand it is uh, the the Roman Empire. So. The Roman Empire starts in this city-state of Rome, but it's ruled from a bunch of capitals in a bunch of different places. And then uh, for a long time, it's not ruled in Rome. It's ruled in a few cities, including Ravenna, Milan, and Constantinople, also known as Byzantium. And then it's just still ruled from Constantinople for a thousand years after it ceases to be ruled um, from Rome, Ravenna, or Milan. And in that sense, one way of saying, one thing to say is that calling this thing Byzantium or the empire of the Greeks is, if not necessarily a mistake, it comes with a certain ideology. And you could just call it the continuation of the Roman Empire or the, the Byzantine Republic. So is that, is that enough for you to start and respond and clarify and contest? Um, yeah, sure. Um, th th that was pretty concise. Um, let me just say that. What we're talking about today is a, a very specific society uh, that kind of held it together for over a thousand years. Um, and it is traditionally called the Byzantine Empire, but it's been called that um, as a kind of rubric for naming it since the late 19th century. So it's not a very old term. Um, what it really was is the eastern portion of the ancient Roman Empire. And... As your readers will know, the Western Roman Empire fell at some point. <laughs> we don't need to get into how or why or when. Um, but the Eastern part of the empire carried on. And that is the society that I study. So from the third or fourth century AD to the 15th century. So, so about almost 12 centuries, um, the Eastern Roman Empire centered in Constantinople, that was its capital, uh, carried on. Um, it is a society that was primarily Greek-speaking. It was a Christian Orthodox after a certain point. 
and it was Roman in its fundamental um, social, uh, legal, and political institutions. And its inhabitants called themselves Romans. They were Romans. Um, this is what they would have called the, the ethnic term. You know, religiously, they were Christians or Orthodox, whatever. Um, I mean, people have lots of identities, but in the way in which we classify states and so on through ethnic or national or state names, it was Roman, and the state itself was called Romania, or the Roman polity, or some variation thereof. Um, anyway, so all the other terms that your uh, audience may have heard, including Byzantium or Empire of the Greeks or whatever, these are very in, uh, inherently political labels um, that were used by other people, not the people we're talking about to describe this state. And so the idea behind your label, the Byzantine Republic, is that, that there was a Republican ideology alive in this, in this empire. I have that right? Uh, yeah, so the first point here has to do with my usage. So I use the term Byzantine only in like book titles and the most overarching rubrics in order to identify in my scholarship what field I'm addressing, where what I'm talking about. Because if I were to use the term Roman, which in a certain sense I would be uh, entitled to do, I think, because it is used pervasively in the sources that I study, it would create confusion. Um, so if we use Byzantine as just referring to a phase of the existence of the Roman polity, which is really all it was, then that's fine for now. Uh, my field is about to have that discussion about whether this term is appropriate or not. Uh, but anyway, we're not here to discuss the term Byzantine so much as we are to discuss the, the mechanics of its sort of political sphere. Uh, where I introduced the term re Republican. And, and so this requires some context um, and explanation, because when you say Republic, Republican in the United States, you mean something very, very different than if you say it in France, right? Like, so these terms have very, you know, uh, this term has uh, a wide variety of meanings in different um, countries and different traditions. So let's start with one obvious well-known fact, which is that the uh, Byzantine Empire, it was a monarchy. Now, I mean, it's probably best if we just refer to it uh, as a monarchy rather than an empire. It's, it's questionable whether it was an empire in the way in which we mean that term in English. So it was a monarchy. It had very well-developed institutions of governance. Um, this, this was not at all a kind of, uh, you know, decentralized, sort of Middle-earth kind of kingdom where there's a faraway king, but he has nothing to do with the shire, and maybe they remember him, or maybe some tax collector shows up every once in a while. No, no, no. It was a, it was a highly uh, organized and bureaucratized society by medieval standards. Um, in fact, by ancient standards as well, um, extensive bureaucracy, you know, um, land censuses, uh, administrative penetration of society um, at very all levels, really. Um, so anyway, lots of overlapping institutions of law, taxation, the church, military recruitment, and so forth. And at the head of all those institutions was a monarch. Uh, whom we call emperor, but there's nothing that corresponds to that term in the Byzantine Greek vocabulary. The title was Vasilevs, which means king or monarch. And now certainly 
he was well can i yeah. can i jump yeah. in here and say i mean this yeah. is uh this sounds vassal is what we is 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 the word that the listeners might know right so we're talking about a a feudal relationship and you can tell me too much how much this is useful as in there's oh, go ahead Oh, no, no, not at all. Not at all. Okay. Um, banish all ideals of feudalism entirely from this picture. They are completely inappropriate. Um, well, then where, let then me just say we, that. No, no, no. This, this is a vassal get into the English language as part of a feudal relationship then. Well, that is Western medieval terminology that even Western medieval historians are uh, very uncomfortable with right now. So there have been. Western medieval historians who have proposed that feudalism is not a good concept for writing Western medieval history. Uh, but let me just say that it is wholly irrelevant in, in almost all periods for the Eastern Roman uh, experience. I mean, when portions of the Byzantine Empire conquered by uh, crusaders in the 13th century and especially by uh, French knights who definitely bring their own ideas about feudal social orders to Greece, then you begin to get some local approximations of that, especially in dealing with the Westerners. But, but these we do not take to be um, you know, sort of normal or normative for the Eastern Roman experience or way of doing things. So we're just going to restrict ourselves to like pre-Crusader influence. Uh, to that period, so before the 13th century, um, the the relationship of the monarchy to the rest of society is institutional and not feudal. In other words, there are no there are no um, uh, hereditary titles of nobility. There are no lords that have rights over lands that are uh, inherited. Uh, there. There are no barons sort of who are ensconced in some region. There is nothing whatever like this. It's a bureaucratic state where people hold office at the pleasure of the government. Uh, and they tend to rotate in and out of offices. The, the provinces are ruled by provincial governors who are sent out by the center and are replaced on a fairly regular basis because uh, for various reasons, it was good to have turnover. Um, the monarch does not engage in like internal diplomacy with barons and lords and counts and so forth, but gives orders to his officials. Now, whether they carry out those orders is a different thing, but, but the relationship is an institutional one. There is no right to titles or, or to the throne. There is no heredity in this matter. Uh, so it, is, it, it functions far more like a modern bureaucratic state in this regard um, than to a feudal one. Sorry, I had to jump in there because no, I, it's, <laughs> it's not feudal. <laughs> oh, this is, I mean, I'm already off the rails in that I wasn't, um, I wasn't trying to suggest that it was a feudal state, merely that that word has infiltrated the English imagination somewhere, although admittedly, I don't know the history of the word vassal. I guess it's very briefly, I don't think I've covered feudalism in any way on this show. And so a lot of what you said may not, feudalism, which is a concept, as Anthony Caldos just said, that is incredibly contested, even among the people who study what would have been called feudal Europe until yeah. relatively recently, 
is really about the holding of land, the holding of title, and as opposed to a, you know, authoritarian, not authoritarian, let's say um, linear bureaucratic hierarchy that goes straight down from someone through an administrative state, you've got a series of people who are in charge of individual plots of land or individual polities or whatever you want to call that, who have power within their own realm, but are also responsible to a realm higher than them. And it all gets sort of complicated and messy. The best way that I can explain this, if this still works, is if you have seen Game of Thrones, that is a fantasy of feudalism in which there is a king and then there are lords who answer to that king. And then there are lords who answer to those lords. And really you get a civil war when a lord decides he's not going to answer to a king, but then you can get a sort of sub-civil war when a lord decides he's going to go with the king as opposed to the lord he is supposed to answer to. And you can think of all of these interpenetrating bubbles of authority that in some ways stack and in other ways are independent of one another. So that is feudalism. And what you're telling us is that that model of all of these interpenetrating bubbles and different levels and instability and who is at which level and who is accountable to whom is not a good way of thinking about whatever, what are we calling this? The Eastern Roman you can, Empire. You can call it the Eastern Roman Empire, the Eastern Empire, or Byzantium. That's fine. I mean, so long as we know what we're talking about, I'm not afraid of words. Um, so, you know, you can call it Byzantium or the Byzantine Empire for the sake of convenience. But so, yes, you're right. That's not the social dynamic uh, at play, um, though occasionally you have events that from a distance seem to mimic it. So you have plenty of civil wars in Byzantine history, uh, but they're far more like... Uh, uh, military coups. Um, so it's a, it's usually a a portion of the army and its leadership uh, who are generals. They're not local lords or anything. Um, they're generals appointed by the center who decide, you know, I'll make a bid for the throne um, and use the army that was entrusted to me by the monarch to replace the monarch. Uh, that's how it works. And so you, then you start canvassing among the officers and you try to get as many as you can on your side. Um, for military coup. There are also palace coups, right? So this could be some, a relative of the emperor or someone else at the court who, you know, canvasses for support in the court um, to overthrow an emperor who is perceived to be weak or unpopular. Um, those are two very common ways of um, overturning the current occupant of the throne. And another one would be a popular uprising in, in the streets by the people of Constantinople usually. Uh, none of these events are um, structured according to relations of vassalage, right? There's hierarchy involved, yes. right? So you can have, I mean, a general rebelling against the monarch is a an act of rebellion in a hierarchical system that violates the, um, the uh, well, sometimes oaths, just sometimes what's expected of an officer. It's overthrowing the, you know, the regime. So sort of, it's illegal. Uh, so you're breaking the law in order to um, um, uh, change the regime. Um, so 
anyway, so from a distance, it can look similar. But once you get into the granular details of it, it, it functions in very different ways. Um, so, for example, in Game of Thrones, you could not, in, in that kind of world, you couldn't very well have someone from a very low social class rise to the top. You know, you'd did have you, to be from one of the families. At any point in Game of Thrones, meet professional soldiers. I cannot think of a single professional soldier in Game of Thrones, except for when they go to the other continents, which are which are Roman yes. influenced. So Game of Thrones is a is a feudal fantasy in which you literally cannot imagine someone doing what you can do in 21st century Western culture, which is joining an institution, being yes. trained up by that institution, demonstrating your merit, and yes. then getting in charge of something that existed in byzantium it does oh, not yeah. exist in at least in our imaginary feudalism yes many many emperors in byzantine history rise through the ranks of the army or the navy or something like that from obscurity from social obscurity that, that happens and it's possible in part because like i said there is no um law that establishes, you know, castes or, you know, nobility or whatever. I mean, there's one law for all Roman citizens. Um, that's just a kind of fundamental feature of Roman law from antiquity um, that um, is actually accentuated in the Byzantine period, but, you know, whatever. Um, so let's get to the fundamental point that you raised earlier. Uh, because we, we have to describe the monarchy and how it works a little bit more in order to talk about how it can be subverted and 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 what the antithesis of the the normal working of, of the bureaucratic institutions is because there is an antithesis it's very powerful so the monarchy is in theory in charge of all of the sort of legal or legitimate institutions of governance in other words commander in chief the the legislature the judge so when in cases of appeal or legal uh, you know confusion or clarification it all comes to the emperor the emperor issues the laws the emperor is in charge of the bureaucracy appoints officials changes the nature of the administration so there's no um uh, separation of powers as we understand it in the modern republican tradition right that we got to be clear about that now, in practice, of course, when emperors are running all of these institutions, governing them, they are relying on other people, lots of people, experts, you know, whatever. Uh, but in in theory, um, as 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 Truman said, the buck stops with me. So, in other words, the emperor is, in theory, the authority that legitimates the operation um, of the government and the changes that take place in it. Now. Having said that, um, there are a number of limitations um, that the emperor faces and that the entire administration faces. Uh, and we'll get to those limitations in a moment. They're very important. So what I try to do in the book, The Byzantine Republic, is shine a very, very different light on how this system works. And so here's the first of two major points of revision. Um, and I think we're going to come to the second one later on. Um, and it's also aligned with um, your, your, the interest of your podcast. So the first one is that historians very often have these, these two major blind spots. 
And the first major blind spot is that historians tend to suppose that the theories of power, the theories of government that emanate from the government itself, from the people with the most uh, official institutional power, that those theories of government are the ones that are actually operative and normative and accepted by everybody. <laughs> yeah, good, right. excellent. Yeah, is I this mean, not so? This, no, uh, I mean this comes. This this is. I mean this is one of the key insights that I try and get at at this on, on this podcast over and over again. Is if yeah. you if you assume that the official account of power is how power works, that suggests yeah. that you have not lived a day in your life because we all know that power does not work that way in our exactly. in our lives. Exactly, and it it's it just so happens that in medieval societies the people who are best positioned to articulate, disseminate, illustrate, right, and promote their view of how the government works and how it should work um, are usually the ones who are in power within it. And this is certainly the case in Byzantium. Uh, the ideas about power and the government that we have tend to come from the court and from writers associated with the court. And they had an incentive and the means to create, to construct a very elaborate sort of quasi-theology of power that did a lot of things and a lot of contradictory things. But the, the, this, the goal of them was to basically persuade anyone at the time, uh, usually elites, but also us, posterity, you know, in effect, that the emperor is anointed to rule by god and so forth and 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 you know your audience can imagine how the rest of it goes um this isn't actually a, a theory of absolute power um and by the way i'm skeptical of even theories of absolute power even in the period of european history that is supposed to be the you know the absolute rule of the absolute kings and divine right and so on when you start prodding those societies and even their official literature, it, the, the theories of absolute power are full of holes, uh, even in the official literature, but anyway. Um, nevertheless, um, the, the Byzantine court and, and its spokesmen try to present this image of order, um, an order that is sort of brought and maintained by the monarch and the institutions of the monarchy and, and all of the apparatus of power that, that it commands. It's a very seductive picture. Historians have been seduced by it. Uh, and it is it, it's visually illustrated, you know, with like icons or ivories of the emperor literally crowning, you know, the emperor of God, sorry, of God crowning the emperor, angels, you know, you know, flanking the emperor and so forth. Um, and especially in the 1930s, um, a group of historians active then constructed what the next century of scholarship sort of operates within this notion of this kind of Byzantine quasi-theocracy uh, that is sort of divinely legitimated and so forth. And now, by the way, the 1930s are not a normal time in human history. And those scholars are responding to all kinds of things happening in, in, in Europe, you know, from Russia to wherever. and uh, 
anyway, um, that's a whole other topic. But I, I have a lot of problems with that model, in particular because it relies heavily on court art and court propaganda, specifically orations praising the emperor. And so those two things have been, you know, taken together as like this defines the Byzantine political sphere. It is a kind of relationship between the emperor and God. And everyone else just kind of gazes upon the, the emperor and God in submission and admiration or whatever, and just kind of follow order. The, the problem is that in practice, that's not what we see. Right. So this does, and this narrative does not account for civil wars and rebellions and street riots, right? Yes. Yes. And let's just say that Byzantium had probably the highest frequency of incidents of civil war than any other society tested. I mean, there I think there are periods of Chinese history that are just as bad, but. Um, Let's not get into the problems that define those kinds of wars. We'll just stick to the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, so it's been calculated that on average is a civil war every 10 years. Sometimes they're more dense. Sometimes they're more spread apart. Uh, this is over a course of like 1136 years. And so that's a lot of wars and plots and attempts to overthrow the emperor. And they come from, the, as I mentioned earlier, the armies, they come from the court, and they come from the street of Constantinople, usually, but not exclusively. And so then you're faced, we're faced with the following problem. Well, the official theory can't explain this. It, it can characterize it. Right? So they're characterized as like evil rebels and <laughs> like whatever, the mob or diabolical inspiration. This is if the attempt to overthrow the government fails. If it succeeds, then this Divine is divinely mandate. inspired and yeah. you know, because it's the next emperor who's <laughs> retroactively legitimating the process that brought him to the throne. And so it doesn't, the, the official theory doesn't explain the practice. Um, and so, you know, one question that I had is why do we reconstruct the political sphere from court orations, for example, and not from the historians, who give a very different picture of how the whole thing works. And that's where the, it's from that tension that the concept of a Byzantine Republic emerges. And the, the Byzantine Republic, let's, very broadly, I can give a more specific definition, but very broadly, it refers to the fact that political power and the legitimation of political power is much more contested in this society uh, with many more stakeholders involved in the allocation and legitimation of power. Um, and that, that the book tries to flesh out that dynamic. So what happens when we try to explain this gap between the reality and, and the theory, and they requires that we bring in more constituents. And it turns out that the theory is in fact, I think, very defensive. In other words, the emperor and the court present the throne as exalted precisely because it's insecure and precisely because they have to compensate for how vulnerable each individual emperor is. All right.
Now, let me add one caveat here. So lest your audience get any ideas that I'm not actually saying, these political, um, these moments of political instability are never, ever, ever about changing the structure of power, right? They're not a revolution along the French lines or the American, well, the American, yeah, also <laughs> in, 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 in some way, and not as much as the French, but close. Um, so it's not about changing the nature of the regime or, you know, it's always about changing the people who are running it and reforming, let's say, some of the abuses or inadequacies of the previous people who are being overthrown because they are deemed, uh, uh, you know, inadequate or or unjust. Right? So the structure tends to remain in place. This is how you have a state and society that survive for so long. It's a very resilient, robust structure, yet there's a lot of turmoil within it. And so that's what the book is trying to sketch. That this isn't a, a, a revolutionary society. The ideas were always conservative, but the allocation and the legitimation of power are highly contested um, all the way down the social scale, really. And so I situate this kind of official picture of how the state works in a broader context of sort of social contestation that involves many hundreds of thousands of people. I, I have so many, I mean, I have at least two or, or maybe more hours worth of, of questions and and thoughts in response to all of this. So I'm going to try and uh, make, oh, so many ways to go. First, I want to contest the idea that it's not a revolutionary society, because if it is a uh, instantiation of the Roman Republic, then just like the uh, American, so I'm an Americanist, and in the season this is coming out, there's going to be an episode on Voltaire Declare who makes this exact argument about the American Republic, which is, this is a country founded on a revolution with revolutionary institutions and the claim that you are not allowed to alter those revolutionary institutions. So insofar as this is a republic, insofar as this is an inheritor of the Roman Republic, the founding of the Roman Republic is the overthrow of the kings. Does that make sense? So it's a revolution, it's a conservative revolutionary or re even reactionary revolutionary regime, which is just my way, Anthony, of contesting the basic premise of the no ability of the governmental structures of societies, as opposed to making a specific, I mean, you're, you're the expert on Byzantium, but as an expert on the United States, this is a conservative revolutionary country all at the same time. And that's why so often it makes so little sense from the outside or even from the inside. The second amendment was created to prevent the formation of a uh, national army. And we have members of the United States military who go to protests in favor of the second amendment. That's the kind of thing that is impossible to parse out 
even as I'm living through it in the United States. So trying to parse that out in the Byzantine Republic is, of course, going to be much, much more difficult. Yes, it is in large part because of the mismatch between our language and our expectations and what we find in the you know, pre-modern sources uh, or in the original sources, if you want to go back to the American Revolution. And so republic is a very difficult term, as I mentioned, right? But also these distinctions that we operate with, like republic and empire, right? Um, so the revolutionary moment that created the Roman monarchy that I'm talking about is not the overthrow of the kings in you know, 510 BC or whatever. Or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's the fall of what we call the Republic, in the late Republic in the first century BC that led to the rise of the, to the origin of the imperial office and Caesar Augustus and so forth. And here, again, there's a big mismatch between how that event is understood in American mythology and what actually happened. Uh, we can we can get into this if you want. I mean, it is the origin of the East Roman monarchy is the same as the origin of the Roman monarchy under Caesar Augustus, which in a way is a very revolutionary moment, um, but one to which many thousands, if not millions of people contributed. It, it, it wasn't some internal coup involving 15 people. It wasn't like Emperor Palpatine with his, you know, thug <laughs> cis lord overthrowing some institution through magic no no this was a involved huge civil wars um riots in the city i mean political disturbance on a tremendous scale before the um position of a sort of quasi monarch emerged to provide some kind of stability um in the end um and the thing is that in 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 the american mythology the Republic is always treated as a positive type of regime and the empire as a kind of exploitative, repressive, totalitarian, whatever. Yeah. When that's not actually what happened, the late Re Roman Republic was a hugely corrupt, oppressive oligarchy um, of some, you know, some senatorial billionaires that were blocking the system from working in the way in which it was supposed to. The, the Roman Republic was supposed to be much more democratic, that is, in the, um, working for the needs and solving the problems of the Roman people. Like it was straight out understood to be that way. It was a sort of populist regime, regardless of who's actually in charge, it was supposed to be working for, in the interest of the Roman people broadly. And this faction of oligarchs were blocking that from happening to the degree that they precipitated a bunch of wars. It was not Caesar who crossed the Rubicon and started the war. The Senate under this faction, led in, among others by Cato, had already declared war on Caesar um, because for whatever reasons they... Anyway, we get it's into that. It's a long story. <laughs> yeah. But the... Emperors were the ones who restored stability, it, uh, and the Caesars were arguably more popular, um, both Julius and Caesar Augustus, for doing so than were the old sort of Republican oligarchs, and were praised accordingly. And they inaugurated the 
period of longest peace and economic prosperity that that part of the world had ever seen. And we're understood to have done so. Yes. Okay. So yes, the regime... Now, yeah. I want, I want to jump real back real quick to something that you said earlier in terms of this idea that, you know, absolute monarchy had never existed. I think it was pretty well understood that absolute monarchy had never existed. But in the 18th century, in, in Europe, in the context you were talking about, in the 18th century, the concept of absolute monarchy was really invented by people like Voltaire in an attempt to restore the Augustan moment. Now, I, you and I know that Augustus was not an absolute monarch, but that was that was the idea to replace a uh, plutocracy, an oligarchy with a mythical benign father. It's why George Washington has a Roman mural of him in the capital, uh, yeah. the apotheosis of the Washington. Apotheosis. I, yeah. yeah, because the I, this this idea of the absolute monarch, which you're quite right, never existed in the European context, was a European dream of a Roman emperor who would do precisely what you said, come in, straighten things out, and rule, you know, for the people, and maybe in some way by the people, but that part was less important than the taking of the power of the away from the elites who were ruining everything and giving it to the so-called good elite. You can also say that anarchism is born in this moment when someone, you know, Godwin is often labeled as the first person to raise his hand and say, and who and who is this good elite that you you know that is going to that can be invested in absolute power? Hence, I know I mentioned you in our email Madison's idea of a sort of a federal government with absolute power that also exists within a federal system that is kind of feudalist, and also that federal government with its absolute power that is also not absolute is distributed across all of these all of these ways and channels. And this is the 18th century moment is the struggle of how do we create this centralized administrative state that can deliver an Augustan style polity without giving us a Nero. That's the that that's the 18th century moment. Yes, how to avoid um, the excesses of monarchy, uh, but also the excesses of democracy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, Right. So in the 18th century context, republicanism was increasingly defined as a non-monarchical regime that was also not a democracy uh, because, the, I mean, the founders, among many other people, had very, very mistaken ideas about ancient Athenian democracy and how it functioned and, or didn't function. They, they, they were just way off on this. Um, but whatever, that's OK. So. I'm going to ask the audience to think to to, to to hypothesize that republicanism need not be anti-monarchical. And in fact, for most of its history, the term was not. So when we're talking about the Eastern Roman Empire or the Roman Empire from its beginnings, it was perfectly well understood to be the Roman Republic. Um, and so here, audiences are going to do a double take and say, what? What are you talking about? We all know that the Republic ended and the Empire kicked in. But no, this is not at all what happened. 
that those terms are very modern. I think they're 18th century, if not their 19th century uh, division. So as far as the Romans were concerned, the, re the Republic, the Res Publica, is like the common interests of the Roman people, right? Both abstractly, but also as a state, their institutions of governance, the quote state property, things like the forum, the roads, the whatever, and the, the foreign the, the diplomacy and the armies, all of these things that, that pertain to the common interests of the Roman people are the res publica, the republic. And there's no sense that the this republic ended uh, with the transition from the regime, let's say, of the Senate and the consuls to that of the Caesars. Um, what you have is just a, a res publica under different governance. Uh, it was perfectly well understood even before this revolution, say by Cicero, that a res publica, say the res publica of the Roman people, uh, could be governed by an oligarchy, by a monarchy, or even by a democracy. And Cicero preferred a kind of oligarchical senatorial mode of governance of the republic. But he understood that you could have a monarchy governing the republic. This, this is not a conceptual problem for the Romans. They didn't like it. They didn't prefer it at that time, or at least his class didn't. Um, but uh, you could just as well have a, a republic under a, under a monarch, which is what the Roman Empire was. And so you, you don't stop getting references to the Roman Republic in imperial literature. That's just what they called it all the time. Um, so this distinction between republic and empire is a modern one, it's a false one by, by Roman term standards, right? So even under the empire, this sort of general ideology prevails that the, the republic of the Roman people continues to exist and that the political authorities, in this case, the imperial administration, is beholden to it in the sense that like, its job is to promote the welfare of the Roman people. And it continues to be that all the way down to 1453. Like this is this is the this is the fundamental ideological foundation of even the Byzantine Empire. It's the same one that this whole political apparatus exists in order to promote the welfare of the Roman people. And the emperors keep saying this over and over and over and over again uh, for a thousand for a thousand years and more. Uh, now that. You can take that on the one hand to be sort of cynical propaganda, it's like, yeah, sure, you know, Jeff Bezos is also doing this for the good of mankind or whatever, right? But these claims, when they're made by a political authority, create an actionable, um, an, 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 an actionable foundation, right, for reaction. In other words, if the authorities are claiming and this is even sort of enshrined in laws in many ways, that the overriding principle behind all of this is the good of the Roman people. When the authorities are failing to deliver on that, they thereby become illegitimate. Not the structures of power, but the specific people who are wielding them. And they need to be replaced. Now, so, you know, you, an emperor can do something um, that... Uh, irritates or alienates a part of the polity. This would be, persecutes a minority, whatever. And that minority might regard the emperor as sort of, okay, you're now illegitimate. You're dead to me because you, you, you harm my interests. You're not promoting the good of the Roman people. 
And if that minority is small enough, they won't be able to do much about it. But if the regime is failing on a pretty wide, large scale to either deliver on that promise or to persuade the population that they're delivering on that promise, you know, there's both things. There's the reality and there's the rhetoric, right? Um, that's when you start to get people thinking about overturning them. And that's why you get like 100 plus coups in civil wars, because in a sense, you know, this is politics, which means that, you know, everybody's looking over their shoulder and everybody's looking to move up. And so weakness is pounced on. And weakness is both, you know, the way we think about it, like you have a weak emperor who just can't manage the job, but also an emperor who's unpopular. Uh, this can be someone who's otherwise perfectly confident and well-meaning, but who has just been very unlucky. And so all of those people are targeted uh, for replacement by other, you know, various constituencies of the Republic, which includes people of Constantinople. They're, they're very politically active, even though, and this is very important, there are no political institutions to channel the political power of the people of Constantinople. They don't do this through elections right, every four years or whatever. This is, this is the crucial point. They act on their own outside of institutions, literally by gathering in the hundreds of thousands in the street and blocking off the palace to the point where the emperor literally can't do anything or just expressing their displeasure. And, and that can bring the government to a standstill and often does force regime change. Like we want someone else to do this now. Right. And this is what we call anarchy, right? This, <laughs> this is I mean, what this you is, call anarchy, yes. yes. Exactly, right. I like you as in me, right? This is, this, I mean, yeah. this is this was the moment that I thought, ooh, I should have this guy on the show because it's not just that anarchy or mob rule existed in Byzantium, but it's your claim that in some ways, despite there not being an institutional outlet, like an election every four years, that this was part of the polity. Certainly not, this is not an anarchic uh, utopia, but that the that, that mob rule was an accepted practice. Maybe that's going too far, but a, 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 a practice that did not destroy the regime, in fact, could be understood as supporting the regime. Does that make sense? And it's then this is just the kind of irony that I delight in. Yes, though let me take issue with some of the terms. Um, because I, I mean I encounter them very often, and I think it's important to um to revise them a little bit. So for example, this isn't mob rule. In the first sense, this isn't a mob. Um it, it, the sources if you have some sorry, really super conceited aristocratic author, they will call it a mob. But for the most part, it's just the people, the people of Constantinople, like the, the populace, as in the English word populace, but also the Latin word populus, from where you get, you know, senatus populusque Romanus, the Senate and the people of Rome. It's, like, it's the people of Rome are the, the ultimate uh, criterion for deciding, you know, whether the regime is performing well. So it's the people, not a mob. And they don't actually rule. They intervene. They intervene and they make their wishes known. And they can intervene to overthrow an emperor. 
they can intervene to create and legitimate a new emperor. Let me make this concrete for, for the audience. How does one become the Roman monarch in this sense, in Constantinople? Like, how do you become, quote, the emperor? You're not, it's not the emperor, the Vasileps, or whatever, right? How does that happen? So, you know, for most monarchies, for most European and Christian monarchies, the audience might imagine some coronation with, I don't know, ointments and things like, you know, prayers and churches and things like that. And over time, those kinds of things were added to the um, accession of an emperor, but they weren't the defining thing. Those are like, that was the bling of accession. You became the Roman emperor. Like there's one moment when you're not, and there's one moment when you are. And the, what what mediates between those two moments is a large crowd of Romans calling you like Augustus or whatever, like literally saying, you're now it. And after that, all the ceremonies are just add-ons. They're just like, okay, because they like a show and whatever. So this often happened in the Hippodrome where you could fit, I don't know, maybe 100,000 people. And so the, the new emperor-to-be comes out onto a balcony and he says, I really try to do a good job. And if, you know, by, the, by the time you get to this point, it's already a sort of settled issue. And they say, yes, Augustus, you're, you're, a, you're the guy. Uh, you know, or, you know, things like many years to you, God be with you, all of this stuff. And this Four acclamation. <laughs> yes. yes. And they repeat this like a hundred times. And that's it. Now you're the emperor. Right? So that happens every time. It can happen in a in a Hagia Sophia, the church, and fit 16,000 people. It, can, it happens in the public squares. In fact, it happens almost every time an emperor makes a public appearance. So the emperor appears before a large crowd. The crowd will chant like, yeah, yeah, Augustus, 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 Augustus. That means that they're accepting him. If the emperor appears before the crowd in the Hippodrome or wherever, and they start booing him or calling him unworthy, Anaxios, 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 or dig up his bones or whatever things, the slogans they chanted, you're in trouble. Like, that's how they let you know that you're, you're now on probation. Like, you better fix whatever it is that was bothering them. And usually emperors would, would do that very quickly because otherwise you, you face the wrath of the populace and there's very little you can do against them. Um, so so it's, that's how it works. It's not mob rule as such. It's a, it's a popular intervention uh, to change the personnel uh, at the highest levels of power. And accordingly, certain policies like high taxation, failure in war, whatever it may be that, that were making the people unhappy. And sometimes the populace wouldn't start the disturbance. But when you have a con contestation, so you have a rebel general in the provinces or uh, 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 some courtier, some high politician who's planning a coup or something like that, the populace will sometimes intervene and choose a side, right? And thereby, you know, so they participate rather than being the protagonists, but they, they definitely do. So it is anarchy in that sense that it is, it is political power from the bottom up, from the ground level that is organized outside of political institutions. It's organized purely in, through a social dynamic that we sometimes, that we can't even access because our sources don't, don't let us know they let us know 100,000 people showed up. We, we don't know how it is that they, why they did that. Um, that is on like, how did the whole thing get started? Who were the movers? Who are the shakers? Whatever, who organized them? It's very unclear. 
Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's extra institutional, but in the terms of legitimating the government, it's fundamental. Like you can't have a, a, a legitimate government in this society without that kind of mass approval. That's yeah. So, um, you, you, your audience can think about it in the following terms, and this is sometimes I say in, in, in conferences or whatever, and it, I don't know, leaves some people mystified or whatever. But so let's, let's take a modern American society. There are two ways by which the populace at large can intervene in the sort of operations of the political, you know, process, and one is through elections. And that's the one that we are told about. Like that's that's your proper that's your lane. You get it in you you your role as a citizen is to vote, you know, for one of the two pre-approved candidates, not to get too involved in how they're approved or selected in the first place. So that's now sort of opened up a little bit more. But those are your you you've got you know corporate guy one, corporate guy two pick right and and then go back go back and watch netflix or whatever just get get out of our, we don't want you around too much right and so that's one way the other way is through mass protest right just making your will and your presence known through sheer bodily presence your pressure right and if you think about it in some respects, method A elections are tending to not produce the kinds of results that people want. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think it's fairly safe to say by now that no matter where you are in the American political spectrum, you're unhappy with the kinds of results that the politicians are delivering, the politicians who are elected. And there's another sense in which some of the most important changes in policy uh, or even just sort of social, the social modes and orders of this country were far more affected by peaceful protest, uh, be it race, racial equality, be it environmental issues, be it anti-war, be it whatever. Um, that wasn't done through elections. Elections came along to ratify the shifts that were evident in the streets, right? Um, but we still, yeah. Is there anyone who believes that the normal electoral process is going to produce results, say, regarding climate change? Like, I don't. So, no, I, however, I, I can... Does. <laughs> Yeah, but I can easily imagine a scenario where if enough people converge on the physical spaces where the operations of government take place and say, we're not going to leave until you do something about this, that will produce more change overnight than how many decades of, yeah, like, anyway, I, I'm no, just saying. No, you're, right. no you're, 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 you're right on track, Anthony. And then, the, I mean, the most famous version of this for me is students are still taught that, uh, oh, blower coming now. students are still taught that Brown versus Board of Education desegregated American schools. But in fact, Brown versus Board of Education did nothing. 
Um, and then uh, Americans, mostly black Americans, did something about it, took to the streets. And then later you get, as you say, elections and laws there. And so this is, and this is, you know, what I would call, what I would call anarchy. And this, this brings me back to, again, the irony that supposedly Byzantium is, you know, Byzantium is, we still use the word Byzantine, right? To mean a bureaucratic process that we cannot do anything about. And so when you're thwarted by bureaucracy, you say, well, I've got a couple of options. I could take the Byzantine option, which is just sit here and be thwarted by unaccountable centralized bureaucrats or I guess I could get up off my couch and do something about it. And what what your work shows is that in fact, getting off, off your couch and doing something about it is in fact also Byzantine, which is not yes. to suggest that Byzantium again was an anarchic utopia, but that it had the same push and pull yes. as every society does. In fact, there was more democratic pull than there was in many other places at the same time, like, for example, the Frankish kingdoms, if I'm understanding that correctly. And in our imagination, Byzantium is a place with no pull, all push. And that is the kind of thing used by elites to explain why we cannot have mass movements in this country. There's always appeals to history. Um, and it's like, well, you know, you 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 want um you want a world in which people have a say, but you know, look at the Roman Empire, it lasted for two thousand years, and the people never had a say in that at all. And that is, you know, that turns out to not be that turns out to not be true. That's right. Um in, in a certain sense, the Roman Empire might have lasted for that long, especially the eastern one, which lasted much longer than the western one in part because uh, its rulers were in a constant state of terror. <laughs> it was, as one of the first ones, Tiberius, the first successor to Augustus, he said it's like holding a wolf by the ears. And yeah, there was none of this um, you know, complacency or security in holding power. It was something that could really only be done successfully by people who were extraordinarily hardworking, um, who really did care for improving what they could of the sort of material life circumstances of their subjects, in, insofar as you know, pre-modern institutions allow you to do that. For yeah, and, and, and when you were not good at doing those things, or for waging war to defend the territory or you know, whatever, if you were not good at doing those things, you could be replaced in, in a sometimes rather grisly way. Um, so, yeah, um, th there, there are very few out-and-out -out sort of tyrannical figures in this story. Now, I, I you know... You sometimes come re across these references to, um, you know, these monsters who sat on the throne of Byzantium and whatever. And, you know, these are even by historians, but they're not experts in the field. And I sometimes write to them on emails, like, which ones 
do you have in mind? I mean, there were some who were incompetent and there were a couple who were sort of cruel or whatever, but that's not the norm. But for the most part, they're sort of very hardworking uh, and very, very keen and eager to be thought of as doing well by their subjects because their lives depended on it. I mean, like it's, yeah. Um, they, remember, they had no right to the throne. You couldn't even say, well, I was elected. Yeah. I don't know. Like maybe my approval ratings are tanking now and nobody likes me and I'm not going to be elected again. But I am president until my term ends because the institutions. Right. No, there wasn't even that. You could be gone by, from one day to the next. Um, you couldn't say, but I belong to family such and such. No, there was no such thing. The throne didn't go by family. It didn't go by um, there was no right to hold a throne. Um, similarly, for all of the officers staffing the administration, you know, military, civilian, whatever, when they became unpopular, they were replaced. Um, so, so, so sometimes the the people would protest in the streets, not against the emperor, but they usually they'd start with lower officials, like the prefect of the city is is fleecing us, or so and so is corrupt. That judge is corrupt, and. Almost without exception, the emperors will replace them. Because even if it's not true, they're now a liability. Like, you don't want to go down because this judge is considered to be corrupt. Well, I mean, awesome. I mean, this is this is delightful. I mean, and do you feel, I guess, as, as we're moving towards wrapping up, uh, I'm, I'm just curious the extent to which um, I don't want have have I distorted your work in this conversation? I don't think I could have because it's mostly been you, but I just want to make sure and or, no, or address no. any potential distortions if you want to. No, 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 don't worry. I mean, I would I would jump in if you if you did. Um, no, the broader discussion we could have at some point is you know about anarchy and just how anarchic exactly is this. Let me just add that this is a society that regards anarchy as one of the worst evils. Like it always wants to have people in charge and it endows them with extraordinary institutional power to be in charge. It just holds them accountable. Um, and so I actually did a word search. Uh, we have a database of Byzantine Greek and I did a word search for all cognates of the term anarchy and it's always a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Like it's consistently a bad thing. Um, now, I mean, that's, that's one side of the picture, right? The other is exactly how it behaves. And since you, you're treating anarchy in a, the broader way than you know a very specific anarcho-syndicalist organization of society <laughs> okay um but you're treating it broadly as you know the kind of power that people private citizens can have by collaborating off stage as it were and pushing for political change and all kinds of things like that yes absolutely there's there's a there's there's a exactly the kind of pull and push that you mentioned um, the action and reaction. Uh, this is by no means this kind of absolute theocracy, you know, where it's all oppressive. It's no, no. In fact, I, I have found out that the government was actually fairly responsive um, to subjects needs and actually extremely eager to be seen as responsive. <laughs> uh, yes, You're talking about public relations. So. Yes, very much so. Um, very eager to be seen as yeah, I'm I'm, tr I'm really trying, guys. <laughs> anyway, but okay. the broader well, topic of anarchy, that's yeah. Yeah, um, and this yeah. is and this is why you know um, 
in my discussion of the uh, recent David Graeber book with some anarchist archaeologists, uh, one of them, Aris Politopoulos, said that one of his uh, colleagues said, I bet you love that new Graeber book because it was just filled with anarchism. But I'm actually, I don't think the word, if the word shows up in that book, it's like two or three times because Graeber is definitely working in this in this broader sense. Yes. And so you could argue, I mean, I, I've, I'm calling this kind of unofficial series I'm doing, or maybe I'll make it official series, like excavating anarchism. And you, you could argue that that entire book is excavating anarchism, but he makes no claims. Graver and will make no claim that, you know, these societies were anarchist in a way that Proudhon would have organized a society if he had organized a society merely that the authoritarian and autocratic origin of the administrative state has been oversold in our narratives of history and they are undermining that narrative. And I thought in that context, yes. Byzantium is another great place to undermine that narrative. Yes, if you can undermine it there, um, there are not many other places where it can go and hide. Yeah. Um, and you, you're exactly right in the sense that there, the narratives of the history of political forms, especially the ones that you encounter in, well, I mean, not, I don't, don't want to say the Western world, but pretty much anywhere there's a state that's promoting a view <laughs> of history, <laughs> right, tend to want you to believe that that official power is either the only thing there is or irresistible. Mm -hmm. And that's just not true. Um, and the political history of, you know, the human species is precisely one of that, the, the, the pull and push, um, it, it, they're inextricable. And just beware of anyone who tries to persuade you that, that either there is no alternative or, resistance is futile uh like there's no re no regime in history that has managed to do that um let's see if the tech tech you know technocrats whatever i mean they're trying to do something like that you, you've seen what ha what has happened to the internet over the past 20 some yeah. years so there there are always forces that are trying to implement this utopia of control um i i don't think they're going to succeed. Uh, I hope they don't. Uh, but it's important to keep reminding people that that it's a, you know, passivity and sort of acknowledging the power of institutions is not the only way that that we can cope. Yeah, and then the the thing I want to add, lest I lest I be seen as too um, positive, is the historian Ian Forrest at Oxford has written about how you know uh, Marxist historians writ broadly love it when the people rise up, love it when there are peasant revolts and things like that. Very often these peasant revolts are themselves autocratic, patriarchal, violent, that sort of thing. And they're just sort of thrilled because since they're using class as an analysis, they're, the Marxist historians get thrilled when it's a different class who is, you know, pushing rather than pulling. 
and that's also a, a, a mistake to get too to get too excited about that sort of thing when actually what we're looking for is i mean th thank you so much for describing my project so so wonderfully the attempt to find the places where in anyone can outside of uh outside of the institutions get get involved in changing the world around them in the way they in a way they want it to be and then you know very often a, a foot soldier in a peasant revolt took orders exactly the same way a foot soldier in an imperial army did and that's yeah, not yeah. the kind of thing that i am that, that's not anarchism as far as i'm concerned right. in any way shape or form yeah, yeah, yeah. awesome so uh Anthony, thank you so much. This conversation was was illuminating, and I, I really, I mean, the way you closed with the idea that anyone who says that, you know, resistance is futile or that that change cannot uh, happen has has just not been paying attention to history. Or what's worse, is reading a narrative of history that is written by the people who are invested in change not happening. In, in one sense, this is a historiographic project. I didn't need you to come on the show to tell me that uh, people actually have a certain amount of autonomy and agency. I already believed that. But historians can assure us over and over again, especially in places like Byzantium, that people do not have autonomy and agency. And uh, it, it takes other historians to remind us that that is not the case. So thank you for coming and reminding us of that. You're very welcome, Graham. Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. And, it, and you know, I love the show. And so I look forward to your future episodes as well. Wonderful. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you.